Hello, and welcome to the Rojas Report. My name is Alejandro Rojas. That's the name, Rojas. And I have with me Steve McDaniel. And Steve, uh, I'm going to actually read uh, your your bio that we had put together. And this, this is the first time I've had Steve on uh, on the show. Actually, Steve is ac- viewing the Rojas Report, uh, and I'm very grateful that, for that. Thank you very much. But uh, let me tell you, uh, something, Steve, so you can understand why I'm so excited for this interview and uh, how Steve can contribute to the conversation, which he's already had. Talk about that as well, even though he's kind of new to uh, at least the limelight in this field. Uh, but Steve McDaniel is a founder and lead software developer of Skyhub. If you've heard about that, that's an organization that uh, the Scientific Coalition for UFO or UAP research just partnered with, but Skyhub is a community of volunteers that's dedicated to developing UAP UFO tracking software that enables users to deploy Skyhub trackers to help research the UFO uh, UAP phenomenon. Steve has over 20 years of technical experience over a wide range of industries. 17 plus years of experience include software development, reverse engineering, Windows, Linux, kernel development, and developing highly distributed systems. Uh, several years of experience using a variety of debugging tools, profiling tools, and software assurance tools. And this next part I have found, especially with our friend Tim McMillan, uh, it's extremely valuable experience, which is uh, Steve spent five years in naval intelligence and a total of 16 years in the intelligence community. Steve was also the one to discover the UAP report request for the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence uh, in the Intelligence Authorization Act for 2021. In fact, this has made big news, but nobody might have even noticed it if it wasn't for Steve. Uh, we'll discuss how Steve found this information and how it relates to his software-driven search for UAP information. We'll also get his uh, observations and perspectives on recent news. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. And thanks yeah. for that fantastic intro. Yeah, thank you for, for coming on. So um, I say new to the field. I'm guessing that you've been into this topic for quite some time though. So somewhat. Um, so tip, normally I, I would catch the occasional UFO documentary years ago, I watched a season or two of Ancient Aliens. Um, haven't watched it since. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'd catch occasional documentaries, and I always wondered if there was something to it. Um, late last year, um, actually over the Christmas holiday, I ended up writing a UFO tool that actually indexed um, thousands and thousands of UFO documents that had been released by world governments or, or through FOIA requests. And that's kind of what got me into the UFO Twitter community. And since then, it's progressed into larger projects such as Skyhub. But I've, I've really been participating in the community less than a year. So I'm somewhat of a newcomer. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, what I guess drove you to do this then? So it's interesting. Years ago, I saw a UFO. So about... It was about 20 years ago, um, in 1996, I actually saw a UFO, and still to this day, I have no idea what I saw. So hmm. I'm not exactly sure what I saw, but it was something I still can't explain. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of why I have an interest in a drive to 
to figure out what's going on. So kind of my perspective is, is I think this is something that's worthy of scientific research and kind of when I decided to get into the community, I wanted to have a very narrow focus and a very specific purpose. And I've tried to focus on that one thing and contribute what I can. And then once I do that, you know, we'll see that where, where that leads me. Mm -hmm. As far as your sighting, are you willing to like share any details? Sure, sure. So I was actually sleeping outside, looking up at the stars with two other people. And as we were sitting there, a very bright red and orange object was moving across the sky. And it was, it was kind of floating across the sky. And all three of us saw it and we're just like, what in the world is that thing? So as it slowly was gliding across the sky, it, it stopped and appeared to stay stationary for, for roughly 10 seconds. Then it shot off in the opposite direction and was gone in one or two seconds. And it cleared the entire sky and horizon and was out of view. And mm -hmm. it was one of the strangest things I've ever seen. But, you know, who knows? The other thing is, this was 4th of July weekend. Um, it didn't look like a firework, but um, there's really like, I d like witness testimony, like personal experience really isn't scientific. So it's hard to really base anything on, on a personal experience, something that you saw in the sky without data to back it up. So that's why we, that's why we're making sky hub. So people have data to back up things that they see. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because my sightings are somewhat, I would say boring like yours, but like you, they still boggle me. And it's, it's kind of funny because of the different reactions people have. So I've talked to a lot of people who are like, I've never seen a UFO. Um, but then I explain, uh, you know, a couple of my sightings, which are similar to yours, point of light doing something it shouldn't be doing. And, and they, they often say, oh, I've seen something like that, but that's not a UFO. That's like a satellite or something, right? And they yeah. don't realize, well, no, that's not how satellites, they don't stop and turn around, you know, yeah. they go one direction. So it's kind of funny because uh, the couple of sightings I've had are, are similar, but uh, like you, they're very impactful, uh, although understated. Yeah, definitely. It's And it's interesting to, to see something and not be able to come up with a plausible explanation so like mm -hmm. like you said it could be a satellite or an iridium flare or a drone and you know over 20 years ago there wasn't really really drones around so it's it's kind of hard right. to find an explanation and there definitely could be like a natural or prosaic explanation for it and if sky help can help determine natural explanations that's also a win mm-hmm Let's get into Skyhub. So Skyhub, and I think you have uh, a part of Skyhub behind you in the background there. It looks I, like a I do. camera with a dome. Yeah, it's one of my <laughs> test cameras and my test setup back there for development. So, In fact, I'm going to bring up the website, but go ahead. Um, so yeah, so kind of the idea with Skyhub was we wanted to remove the human element from uh, UAP observation. So people often talk about how difficult it is to uh, study the phenomenon because it's not reproducible. Well, that's perfect because that's what observational science is. So we basically have made a platform that is free 
uh, the software is free, you'll have to purchase the hardware. But we use commodity off-the-shelf hardware to put together a platform to collect uh, different data points about, about UFOs and UAPs. So we're collecting video data, sensor data, includes magnetic readings, uh, atmospheric readings, temperature, barometer, and, and things like that. And we're also tracking uh, airplanes uh, using ADSB. So we'll actually track uh, airplanes flying within range of you so we can help roll out known aircraft from the sky, which is really helpful when you're trying to find things that shouldn't be there and that aren't explainable. So really what it is, is it's a citizen science platform that anyone can get involved and deploy their own tracker and create a global data set that we plan on giving away for free. So the idea is we can accumulate this massive data set from trackers all over the globe and try to get academics and scientists involved to actually analyze and research this data. And to date, it's been great. So we've, we've gotten individuals, actually specifically, we brought Chris Cogswell in. He agreed to be our director of, of the science at uh, Skyhub. So he's the director of the advisory board. So he's managed to reach out to lots of, lots of scientists and academics, and we're getting individuals such as um, meteorologists and physicists involved. Um, we've got astronomers involved in that, <clears throat> excuse me, astronomers involved that have basically more expertise in certain areas that really help the project grow and, and develop. And that's what we want. We want academics to look at what we've done and realize that we've actually followed the scientific method and produced a data set that they don't have to worry about the stigma or, or the, the fringe aspect of ufology. They get to focus on just pure data. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of a burgeoning area right now. Um, although when I say that, you know, uh, it's a slow growth, but it, it's there than it was in the past. Um, and I do want to, so it looks like your project is you provide the software, you create the software, people, it's open source, anybody can use it. And then you give people directions on how to build their own device, like the one that we see in the picture here, um, yes. which is, it looks really cool. And at least, but the bottom part actually looks fairly simple. It looks a lot like the uh, storage unit I have outside uh, like one of those outside storage type things. So it's actually pretty fantastic. So we had a member uh, of the community that was involved early on. His name's Richard. Um, he's from Austria and hmm. he actually designed this case. Um, so he actually has one of these that he built and is sitting on his roof in Austria pointed up at the sky. So it's really great to see members of the community be uh, major contributors to this this project. So he's really solved a lot of the hardware and enclosure problems that we have. Um, he's gone through like done weather testing. He's uh, deployed it out in the rain for weeks at a time. And wow. it's really, really run well. And we're, we're looking at building more of these enclosures and deploying more boxes that look just like this. Mm-hmm. So is it a combination of people can take the initiative to build their own, but also you're trying to raise funds to get them built and to distribute them? So ultimately, um, right now it's very DIY. So 
there's actually a lot of these parts are 3D printable. So you can actually print them in a 3D printer and all those files are available. Over time, we would like to transition into buying the entire unit um, in one piece because not everybody wants to do wiring or assembling or 3D printing. So we have discussed doing something like a, a Kickstarter campaign or Indiegogo where we can go to a manufacturer and say, okay, here's the complete system. Make us a thousand of them or however many we get funded and actually be able to mass produce so people can just buy a box and plug it in. Mm -hmm. So that is a long-term goal of ours because we would really like to see thousands of these deployed across the globe. Mm -hmm. And so you've got working units. Like right now you have units that are working and the ability, like you've got it all worked out where this can actually be done, created right now. Yes. So we have a bunch of test nodes. So we hope to uh, make a final release this month, but we have oh, a cool. bunch of test nodes across the United States and uh, Austria that are currently processing live video data and, and basically collecting metadata and environmental data and shipping it to a central location in the cloud. So we are really close to having a, a public release um, that will be generally available to the public. That's cool. And the reason I state that is because, as you probably are aware, there have been several other projects to do this. Um, one, uh, let's see, what is it? UFO Photog or UFO Tog, you know, which is uh, backed, and I probably had this guy on the most, Mark D'Antonio, because he's a friend of mine who works with uh, the special effects guru of shows like Close Encounters, uh, Douglas Trumbull, and they've tried to develop their own. Of course, they're just a two-man team, essentially. Um, there's uh, Chris, um, he's in the San Luis Valley of Colorado, um, Chris O'Brien, who's created when he's actually deployed a few. And then there's also uh, maybe even more important for uh, what's going on right now, Chris Mellon, who's in the news so much and part of To The Stars uh, and some of the other more serious researchers put together a group called UFO Data a few years yeah. ago. And that kind of made headlines. Leslie Kane wrote about that for the Huffington Post. Leslie Kane being one of the authors of this string of New York Times articles on UFOs. Um, but nothing really came of, of that. Really, not much is Chris O'Brien's the only one to actually get one deployed out in the field. So it's kind of exciting that uh, you guys, you know, came into this not at the beginning with something you hoped to do, um, kind of like UFO Data did, but you actually are ready to deploy. Right. So, and I, it's interesting because over a year ago, I actually sent UFO data a message um, because I wanted to join their team and work on it, but I never actually heard back. And I believe I reached mm. out two times. Um, and it's it's something I've kept my eye on and they do occasional status updates, but I don't know how involved their project is or how much activity they have going on. But there is some great projects out there um, that appear to have made some really good progress. UFO DAP. Um, I think it's done a very good job with their platform, but we, I wanted to take a different approach. Um, I wanted this to be an open community and I wanted the data to be open to the public. 
I mean, it's really not about the tracker, right? It's about a public database of, of UFO data that people own. So there's no cost. We've licensed everything under a Creative Commons license. All of our source code is licensed under an MIT license. Anybody can take anything we've done and use it for any purpose. There's only one stipulation on the data. Um, it's free for public use and academic use, but we do have a stipulation and it's, it is for, you cannot use it for commercial use. So we wanna make sure that that data it makes it to the public and to academia without any cost at all. That's cool. That's great. Um, so getting into some of the software side, like you mentioned on the site AI a, a lot. Um, so maybe you could share the role artificial intelligence takes um, in the project. So, yeah. So one of the things that's very expensive when you do basically any type of cloud infrastructure is Storage costs a lot. So one of the things that takes a lot of storage is video. So we want to keep video in its raw form and it takes a lot of space. So we can't just store every second of video from every tracker. What we really want to do is have some sort of filtering mechanism that runs at the edge and that would be on the tracker. So the best way to filter is to use machine learning. So machine learning has progressed leaps and bounds over the years. And basically we're using machine learning models such as tiny yellow and, and uh, object tracking to identify and label objects. Now, often when we bring this up, people point out, well, how do you identify something that's unidentified? <laughs> so a good, it's a good question, right? So we start with the things that we know, so we can go through and classify birds and bugs, flies, planes and things that we know should be in the sky and we basically assign them a label and fortunately there's lots of publicly available free machine learning models that we get to start with so we start with all the known things and over time as we collect more and more data we'll be able to tune and tweak our machine learning models to find truly abnormal things in the sky so at some point there will be a human in the loop to analyze some of the anomalous stuff that we see. That, that's exactly what we want. The machine learning is going to help us filter out all the, all the video that we can't go through. Because if we have hundreds or thousands of trackers, there's just not enough time to analyze all that video. So we, we're taking, right. taking advantage of AI to help save us time and be more efficient at finding anomalous activity. How good is, are you finding, is that machine learning? I mean, does it uh, accidentally, does it screw up, I guess? Yeah, it, it, it does. Absolutely. So um, it, depending on what machine learning model you use, you might hit like 70% accuracy on labeling an object correctly, but some of those machine learning models up to 90% accuracy. And Wow. Training machine learning models isn't one of my expertises. I have done it in the past, but it really is based on your network topology and your training data set. So the quality of the training data set really dictates how accurate you're going to be. So it's kind of a balancing game between the size of your model, the performance, and um, the accuracy. So it's going to be something 
well, you know, if you're a, a machine learning expert, jump into the project, come help us train models. Um, you know, we're definitely looking for expertise around the community to help improve uh, the accuracy of our system. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I guess one of the things, is there like a threshold when it gives you, does it have like a confidence level when it labels things? Um, you know, that it's pretty certain that this is a plane or, you know, it, it there's a 30% chance this is a plane. Does it give that sort of thing? Yes, it does. So generally it'll give you um, four or five probabilities on what object it is. So it might mm. say there's an 82% chance this is an airplane and a 17% chance this is a bird. Generally it's correct in the, let you take the highest probability and use that to actually tag and label the image. Mm -hmm. But the benefit of that is, so one thing I love about Skyhub, because it's not all about UFOs, um, we're collecting data on, uh, you could potentially use it for bird migration or tracking aircraft or planes. Because if you can identify all these known objects, um, such as comets or helicopters or drones, you could really make a valuable data set for lots of different things and lots of different research that people would be interested in. So right. That's what, uh -huh. go ahead. That's what's gotten me excited about other projects and why I'm so excited for these projects to launch. Of course, it's very interesting to capture unidentified objects, but um, that's for, far and few between, but other rare natural occurrences, uh, there's a lot of potential there also um and there's a lot of learning uh that can happen it seems like from the deployment of, ob of of equipment like this uh in that you know we can learn so much more about our natural environment um oh, definitely definitely and one of the there's a project called PressureNet. i don't know if you're familiar with it mm -mm. Um, i might be mistaken i think it was run by stanford university um someone will probably correct me after this but essentially they, they made a mobile app that ran on phones and it read the, the air pressure from your phone. So it just grabbed the barometric, barometric pressure and returned that data back to a central server in California. So they have thousands of people returning barometric readings to a central database, which helps with weather prediction and understanding how pressure truly is, is changing uh, across the globe. And, um, we'll be able to do things like that. Um, we'll be able to measure all these different atmospheric readings and provide a central database where people can do analysis and research and potentially, you know, get better at detecting earthquakes or, uh, you know, weather events or pressure or temperature. So, you know, if you go ask a scientist or a researcher what he wants, he wants money and he wants data and we can at least help with one of those things. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Potentially the most important part, because usually the money, well, it funds the capturing of data, which can be really expensive, which has been kind of the gatekeeper uh, for the most part, I think, in this community and why we've had to rely on such poor data, um, mm -hmm. because getting good data on projects such as yours um, historically has been very expensive. And and even now it's relatively expensive. Like the average person uh, would probably hurt their pocketbook a bit to uh, dive in and try to 
build one of these themselves. Right. And, you know, we've, we've really tried to focus on that. So for about $300, you can launch a bare minimum tracker that will watch the skies 24 seven. And, you know, it's not super cheap, but it's affordable for a lot of people, especially people that are interested in the topic. Um, you know, $300 isn't too bad. And we really wanted to try to make this as accessible as possible. Um, but on the higher end, um, you can literally go spy, spend thousands of dollars on a single camera. So, you know, if, if someone has the, the funds and uh, access to the equipment, they can set up a very sophisticated Skyhub tracker and we'll support that. So we, that is so cool. Yeah, we've really tried to cap captivate a large audience. We really would like to get as many people deploying these as possible. And cost is a big deal. Unfortunately, computers keep getting cheaper and cheaper. And NVIDIA has released a Jetson platform that is designed for AI and machine learning. And that's what we're basing the Skyhub tracker on is an NVIDIA platform that's used for uh, UAVs and self-driving cars and things like that. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the thresholds we talked about earlier on, uh, you know, tagging unidentified, I guess, um, what are, are those kind of malleable? Are those things that you're working on constantly? And like, if I was to have my own unit, would I kind of set those parameters myself? So for instance, you know, I want to identify anything that has under 50% confidence level and, and identification as something I want to review. Mm -hmm. So we kind of set a baseline for the whole network. So the plan is, is to deploy the same configuration to all the trackers. You really want to collect data in the same way. You kind of have a control if you want like a valid, consistent data set. So mm -hmm. those, those features and vectors that we're tracking will be controlled um, as a community. So basically we'll push out that configura configuration to everyone. But long-term, as we start getting more data, we, we actually want people to volunteer and help identify and label objects. So we, what we'll plan on doing, and this is, this is probably something that'll happen hopefully in the next year or so, we'll have a database of images and videos that people can go through and help us label and identify. So that's how Google and Facebook and Amazon have done it. They've used humans to train these data sets because, I mean, that's what you have to do. You have to use humans to go generate a data set to at least get started with um, the automatic detection. So in time, we'll have a platform where users can come in and help identify uh, objects that we can't classify. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we'll, we'll get to the point where we can identify most known things and some anomalous things. And I think it just makes the data that much better, especially when you get people involved to help you build that data set and that mm -hmm. knowledge base that you need for machine learning. Yeah, that's exciting. Now, with the Scientific Coalition of Ufology, some of them are have been in UFO data, or I should say Scientific Coalition for UAP Research, the name changed. Uh, an organization now that you all have partnered with, a group that I was there with beginning and, and I work with quite a bit. Um, and one of the few groups of people trying to, you know, gather data and use science um, to investigate this field, one of those people is Robert Powell, 
who I also work with at MUFON. He was a functional director. He was in charge of the scientific advisory board there. And so in looking at the data, which Robert and I uh, both have kind of a passion for, one of the struggles has always been MUFON collects a lot of reports. And there are a lot of especially media and some others who try to uh, distill uh, something from those reports. But one of the problems that we have all we found early on, Robert and I, and I always identify is that it's really poor data. I mean, really, you have um, untrained observers uh, looking at things. Uh, I think that, you know, for instance, in Arizona, uh, that who has they've got a really, really a great chief investigator there. And they come up with about three percent unknowns. So the vast 90% of sightings are something that are misidentified. And that's so the data is really, really dirty, essentially. Um, whereas something like this is much more clean and you have a lot more information that comes along with that data. Um, it seems to me, even though we have these thousands of reports that organizations like MUFON collects, there's limited value um, to that data scientifically and so the data you're collecting, although it may appear and some people feel like, oh, we have so much data, we can tell so much about UFOs. The reality is we have very little good, clean data uh, as of n this moment in time. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's it's really tough. Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to get um, like if you're an investigator and you, you're going out to see someone that has a UFO sighting and you fill out a report, you know, the report itself could bias the person based on the questions that you ask them. Maybe they remember details different than how they actually happened. So it's really a difficult problem. And also uh, the person filling out the report for them. It's like you have all these different factors um, that make it difficult to study. It's uh, I'm not saying it's not studyable, but kind of removing the human element is useful because um, your perception might is much different than than a piece of equipment. So that's why we use very specific, fine-tuned pieces of equipment for studying, you know, quantum particles. Um, that's why we use why we use them in physics. They're very specific for you know a very narrow focus. That's kind of what what our aim is. We're going to collect very specific things in a very consistent manner and and do that on a global scale. Mm -hmm. so, it, it, go ahead. I was just going to say that's why these projects are so exciting because, I mean, I think there's been a, at least for the, the folks in SCU and, and those of us looking for better inner data to figure things out on, um, it's exciting to have these projects. That's why so many of us have been so excited about UFO data or some of these other organizations and, and so let down that really none of them have got off the ground, unfortunately. Um, although on the same note, um, at least society, uh, the, there, I shouldn't say there's no value to that data that an organization like MUFON is gathering because what is interesting is I think you can, which does help trend how humans react. I mean, yeah. that's really what you're you're looking at is is what prompts humans to report sightings. What are they reporting? And it's kind of that social factor which can help with scientific data. For instance, 
you know, how many UFO sightings are there, uh, you know, increases there when the latest season of Unidentified is out? Because um, I found, you know, certainly these TV shows that are very impactful for like that, even Ancient Aliens, they drive a lot of UFO reports. Um, the interesting and, thing mm-hmm. about the the personal sightings that get reported. So I would love to see when Skyhub starts getting deployed in more areas, if someone has a sighting, if you can actually correlate that sighting with an event in the Skyhub network. So mm-hmm. I think when you're able to do that kind of correlation on reporting where you take uh, witness testimony and correlate that with uh, what is collected on a Skyhub tracker, I think it gets even more interesting, right? So you have mm-hmm. somebody that saw something and a tracker caught it um, with a sensor array. Um, I think the data set gets that much more interesting. Mm-hmm. And truly, you can start you know, s- studying different aspects of the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of transition also over into some of the latest news and some of the Navy and all of this sort of thing. One of the things that I've been finding and kind of thinking of quite a bit lately is, and I love your your input on this, is intelligence work is fairly similar to journalism. Um, and in that, for instance, the reports I write for Open Minds, uh, if I were to be doing this for an intelligence agency, essentially writing a report of a summary uh, of a situation, it'd be fairly similar, uh, especially if you're doing a good job as a journalist where you're citing your sources and you're, um, um, you know, not filling it with opinion or bias. Uh, right. So you have good intelligence, right? Um, I mean, does that ring true? I think so. I mean, w- when you're researching anything, you you follow the data. I mean, you basically have leads that you try to verify and vet, and you have to establish a good foundation for making claims in in anything you do, um, whether it be intelligence work or science or journalism. I think generally you have to have a strong foundation of data and facts to to support anything. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the, the videos that we've gotten out of the Navy, of course, the To the Stars is released, there's... Um, a bit of limited value to that data, but part of it is due to, it seems like there's probably a lot of telemetry that was gathered that we aren't privy to um, besides just the video. Uh, you know, it's possible. Um, I really don't know. So the mm. tough thing about this is um, we're working off limited evidence. So I've talked to a bunch of the guys from the Nimitz um, it's a very compelling story, and it's actually one of the stories that uh, piqued my interest to start getting more involved in into UFOs. But if you actually look at it from a scientific perspective, what is publicly available, it's it's not that useful. So we need more data. So mm-hmm. I think it's very unlikely. Um, I don't know this. I've, I think it's very unlikely we'll ever see that data. Um, for it to become declassified, um, I think it's really unlikely. I, I think ultimately if we want to see data on UFOs, the public has to go get it themselves mm-hmm. unless there's more transparency. But I, I just don't see um, collection systems or intelligence systems being made available to the public. Mm. 
And beyond that, I mean, in your estimation, and of course, uh, your guess, but it's an educated guess, I mean, uh, with your background, the Navy says they take this stuff seriously, but how seriously do you think they take it? So do you think that they would dedicate resources? It seems like it would be worthwhile. So for instance, in the situation, perhaps a, a, a wiser protocol would be if you're witnessing uh, unidentified objects, you know, on radar, that you record that and that you have some sort of protocol to record that information so that it can be analyzed later to figure out whether it's an error in the system or some other error, because it certainly affects the safety of, you know, your, your guys out there doing training in the area and your ability to identify potential hostiles. I mean, if that was, that was a training situation, but if it was a, a live, you know, battlefield, um, type of situation, then those unidentifieds could cause a lot of confusion. Oh, definitely. Um, purely from like a defense perspective, to have an aircraft of any kind get close to a battle group or any Navy vessel is a big deal. So, I mean, consider if something got within firing range to a, a naval carrier, that's a really big deal. You don't want that to happen. So even ignoring that they're unidentified, um, you can't let that happen. So uh, you can't have some sophisticated aircraft get close to any any military asset. Um, it's a big risk. It's it's really, I mean, if you want to maintain a national security mission, you have to stay on top of this kind of stuff and be able to identify and like mitigate potential risks. So yeah, I think there's a lot of risk to having, and that's what it's really about, mitigating risk. So if you want to mitigate that risk, you need to understand what you're dealing with with and i'm not sure we fully understand what we're dealing with and i think the navy videos is a perfect example so you have a lot of very compelling witness testimony from a number of people and then a couple videos that show something un like completely unknown um we have not done well to explain it so yeah i, I think it poses a big problem especially when mm -hmm. you you know, hear things that David Fravor said and his initial thoughts were this thing's from out of this world mm -hmm. and interacting with a sophisticated aircraft. So it does seem problematic that we haven't quite at least publicly figured out what it is. And I, I think people should push very hard to, to make the government accountable and to mm -hmm. be transparent about this. And it seems like, Perhaps there was some analysis done in that uh, allegedly, you know, radar data, video data was acquired and taken away by some somebody and, and then potentially examined. But it was reactionary. It was after the fact. And mm -hmm. so whatever they were able to obtain, um, you know, was not intentional. It was happenstance. That, you know, someone like Kevin Day paid attention. If he would have just really blown it off, then they wouldn't have had anything to gather and jets wouldn't have been scrambled. So it doesn't seem as as uh, big of a, a issue or something they're paying attention to as much um, at that time and potentially not now. It was more like, well, if something happens, we'll take a look at it, but uh, we're not going to actively try to investigate thing, these things or gather data, at least at the limit.
even in Roosevelt, I think it, I think we heard similar sort of things. And that kind of alludes to that, although, well, the idea that they haven't been really taking it that seriously and perhaps because of taboo, and it sounds counterintuitive, I think that people, especially the more conspiracy minded that, yeah. you know, of course they're doing everything. There's, there's all this, you know, research and secret stuff going on. Well, we didn't really see that. We haven't seen that in military cases. What we've seen is uh, more of a reactionary type of um, stance where sure, maybe after the fact they'll take it seriously, but before the fact, it's not really something people are thinking about um, and so, even avoiding. So it's kind of interesting. So um I'm not real up to date on UFO history, um, mm -hmm. but I am aware of Project Blue Book. So there are times where we have taken UFO seriously. And I was shocked that um, when Lou Elizondo came out publicly that there was actually a program studying unidentified aircrafts. So, I mean, there has been programs running. Um, who knows? Like the, the classified world is is very stovepiped. So for all we know, there could be programs. Um, we know of at least ATIP and OSAP and potentially more um, might be known in the future. So it's really hard to, to know how long this has actually gone on inside the government and classified programs. But unfortunately, like we, we have to stick with the facts. We at least know that ATIP and ASAP, OSAP existed. So there seems to be interest internally it doesn't seem to be a lot of interest. Um, I know some of the numbers were thrown out, like $22 million were spent. Um, I'm not sure they spent more than that, but um, from a defense budget perspective, that's super low. That's, that's yeah. not much. So, and, and we may find out in the future that there is more, more ongoing. I, I do believe that um, the intelligence community and the DOD is actually taking this more serious now. And I think the Senate intelligence committee report is, is evidence of that. So there's politicians and legislators that are, they, they might've been baffled, you know, over the last two years, finding out there are truly unidentified objects flying around. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to that Senate um, intelligence committee, uh, which is really Interesting, because another part of your use of AI, and you mentioned this uh, in your introduction, um, is the use of, uh, a, you know, scrubbing the net to look for information and for documents. And so maybe you could share, how did you come across this uh, mention of this UAP report request uh, that the Senate Intelligence Committee was making? So this is actually kind of funny. It was a total accident. This was not intentional at all. So I very, very rarely look for documents. Um, I happen to be on govinfo.com and I searched for UFO and a couple documents popped up, nothing, nothing related to UFO. So I was like, well, I'll search UAP, nothing showed up. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll type out the full phrase. So I, I searched unidentified aerial phenomenon and I was like, they published a new document four days ago. So I opened it up and I read the whole thing and I have a private chat with a, a couple guys from Skyhub and shared it in there. And I was like, have you guys seen this? Like they actually proposed uh, a UAP task force. <clears throat> so um, I read the document and I went to work. <laughs> so like eight, eight or nine hours later, I ended up posting it to Twitter because 
you know, I was wondering like, why am I not hearing about this? Yeah. So I, I went and posted it and it kind of exploded uh, from there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's sort of how it happened. It was a complete accident. I just happened to search the right phrase on the right day. So, and it's sort of interesting. And I, I really, I think I dropped the ball in asking this and I'll, hopefully I'll be able to get this answer soon. Um, I would assume that Chris Mellon knew uh, Chris Mellon with a tip uh, or with to the stars Academy. And he's the guy who, you know, used to work for the Senate uh, intelligence committee uh, has done a lot of work in the government. He's on unidentified. Uh, he essentially was lobbying that the Senate intelligence committee do this. And it happened. Uh, it's the only person really actively lobbying for this, as far as I know of, even coming up with verbiage and obviously had quite an effect. Mm -hmm. um, so my opinion uh -huh. is they knew it was coming. So when I posted on Twitter, I, I think Chris Mellon missed my original tweet of that article. Later that day, um, he made a tweet that I responded with something along the lines. Is that why we're seeing, you know, a, you know, basically UAP task force verbiage in the Senate intelligence committee report. And then he responded with more to come dot, dot, dot within hours. Uh, TTSA was pumping out uh, press releases and, and blog articles covering that document. I, I think they knew it was coming. They just didn't know when. And I think it just went unnoticed by everybody. Yeah. I mean, the other possibility is they knew they just wanted to keep it under wraps, mm -hmm. uh, which would probably be wise too until it passed. Um, because certainly the circus has come to town and, uh, and it's your yeah. fault actually partially. Yeah. And uh, maybe the New York times might have been wanting to reveal this themselves. They maybe had, we're going to get the scoop, but, um, just didn't get the scoop actually because of you, Brian Bender with Politico got the scoop as far as mainstream media. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that, uh, it was kept so secretive and so quiet until you ran across it and really blew things up. Yeah. I was, I was sort of amazed about it because, you know, I'm not a journalist. I, I, I read the article and I was like, wow, this is pretty groundbreaking, but I didn't really think, think to say, Hey, I should probably send this to a journalist. <laughs> Like it just didn't cross my mind. I was just fascinated by the article uh, after I read it. But, you know, one of the reasons I shared it is because I wanted to get uh, other people's analysis. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of really great articles about it. And MJ and Tim and uh, mm -hmm. others put out great, great coverage of that article of, of the report. And even Adam Kehoe has put out some really great interpretations of some of the verbiage in there. So, mm -hmm. so I, I guess I was a little selfish and sharing it with everybody. I just wanted to see what they had to say about it. No, I think it's great. I think everybody is really appreciative that you did that. And I think uh, uh, it's great. I mean, really, uh, it's yours to share. You're the one who found it. So funny that you had just run across it in that manner, um, not using AI, using BI, yeah. brain intelligence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You know, it's funny because I'd never been to govinfo.com before. Um, and I just happened to happen to navigate there. And I was like, oh, great. Here's a place where they actually digitize documents from the Federal Register and from Congress. So I started searching for documents there and I just got lucky. Yeah, well done. Because I mean, 
Um, it's, it's a huge, it really is a huge game changer. And I think that the impacts of the significance of the Senate asking for this information and, and then the manner in which they did, and even Chris Mellon's influence and participation is a much bigger story than what we've seen thus far. And, you know, I guess that brings us to, I think Brian Bender did a pretty good job in just sticking with the facts and, and uh, he put some, he got a hold of Chris Mellon and got some uh, responses from him on all of this. But uh, like maybe even very quickly, like the day after you posted or something like that, very soon after, but it brings us to the New York Times story on this, which was really weird. I mean, I have been one of the hugest fans of Leslie Kane for, for many years. She's a good friend. I, I like her a lot. And I've had some conversation with her in the last couple of weeks. But the article was so strange, especially in that a lot of paraphrasing without quotes or, or sourcing. Mm -hmm. um, and then not only that, kind of muddying the waters or at least mixing the messages in that hey there's the senate intelligence committee uh they're asking for more information so we're going to get more information from this task force that was likely uh you know a tip but in a new form um however then they throw in this weird stuff about these guys convinced that there's ufo crashes and it really kind of muddled muddied things up and it, it it was kind of strange. Did you find it odd? Yes. So, I mean, there's a lot of history, as you know, that led up to the New York Times article. It almost sounds like potentially uh, the article tipped off a number of people that there was going to be a UFO crash or T-roll coming out at some point. Um, and it had to do a lot with the Wilson leaks. Um, so I, I read those when they initially came out. Um, I... I didn't think much of them. Uh, there's really no evidence. Well, there's really no good evidence inside those documents. There's lots of claims, a lot, of, lots of anecdotal stuff, but um, not much actionable evidence. Sure, you can vet the sources that are mentioned in in the document, but leading up to the article, um, it's interesting to see more articles. But you know, through the retractions and corrections, and um, I, I guess it. It didn't do much for me. I, I really want to see more evidence and transparency, and hopefully, this article will produce something more. But it was just such a weird chain of events, especially watching the Twitter community um, talk about the Wilson leaks and the UFO crash retriever article that was coming. And the mm -hmm. article was different than what I expected. I actually expected no article. I didn't think it, anything related was going to happen, but. You know, an article did come out that had a slightly di different narrative. Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts? I, I thought an article was coming out, but I didn't think it would contain the Wilson documents. And, and just as quick a nutshell for those who are not familiar, the Wilson documents are these uh, documents that came out um, allegedly. And I think this has been fairly well established from Edgar Mitchell's uh, since he passed away, some of the the files that he had, and these were are allegedly notes from Eric Davis, a physicist who worked with um, uh, ATIP, who is in this New York Times article saying that he believes and he has briefed uh, the Pentagon on off-world, you know, devices, vehicles being captured. Um, 
But these notes allegedly from Eric Davis are, are him meeting with this admiral and the admiral says, yeah, I found out about the UFO crash retrieval program. I tried to go in there and get information. I tried to walk in and say, I'm an admiral, let me in. And they said, no. Um, I mean, and, and I'm sorry for making fun of the notes, but they are silly like that. I mean, you read the notes and the, the even the interactions are really weird and certainly not the type of thing, maybe the type of thing you'd see in the TV show. John Greenwald even speculated they read more like a TV show script than they do real life. And I think that's true. Um, and a lot of people have talked about how really this is breaking so many protocols an admiral would be familiar with. Um, so Eric Davis will not comment on the notes. Admiral Wilson, who is supposedly the guy who tried to figure this stuff out, says this never happened. I was never even in Vegas. I haven't been in Vegas for years, so that they're not true. Um, right. So that's kind of what the Wilson documents were. They weren't mentioned in the article, which makes sense because nobody's fessing up to it. It would have yeah. been really weird to mention it. But even though they did, what they did mention was essentially Eric Davis's opinions. And I just wrote an article yesterday, a follow-up to another one, um, which was essentially based off of Chris Mellon's response, which seems to be more um, along the lines of, you know, a, re a responsible response, which was Eric Davis gave the Pentagon, people at the Pentagon leads so they could potentially confirm this information. Right. But essentially saying that's all they are is leads. And that's been my argument. Whereas a lot in the UFO community have ran with this is confirmation. There's UFO crashes. Roswell's real, blah, blah, blah. Well, no, you know, as he told me in Open Mind UFO Radio, which I think is his longest interview on all of this, he heard from colleagues who knew he was interested in UFOs who shared classified information with him, um, at least information they felt was classified, uh, that Certainly, I would imagine if you're selling, sharing classified information with someone else who has a clearance, I don't think you're expecting that person to share that information publicly uh, with yeah. the New York Times and so forth. So, or with Open Mind UFO Radio, which he did, you know, and, and essentially, so the information is kind of sketchy. It's hearsay um, to begin with. Um, but, you know, I did mention this, and I would like your thoughts on this. I did mention there is a purpose that is served in that. At least Elizondo says he's convinced of this. Davis, of course, is convinced of this. It is signaling, I guess, from them that we believe there are UFO crashes or UFO debris that you all have. Uh, so we want to hear about that in these reports that are upcoming. Right. So I'm, I'm a little curious. So Elizondo has publicly stated i believe that um i think he believes that we have ufo debris I don't he know told fox news yes to ufo material then tucker carlson kind of mentioned ufo debris but elizondo was talking at the time um so essentially he says yes ufo materials however i did ask i said the new york times is now saying you're convinced there there's ufo crashes and materials and he said he felt that was he was fine with that framing. He didn't really tell me, well, where is this source? Did they interview you directly? He just said he's fine with that framing. And he didn't really, he doesn't like talking about this stuff that much. Um, so it's, it's so interesting because it's such a huge claim. It and is, exactly. It, it, like a lot of people seem to accept that potentially, and what, what, when we're talking about UFO in this context, we are talking about ET, right? Potentially. No. So. Now, Davis believes that, and he says he believes 
but Elizondo's been very clear. UFO does not equal necessarily okay. equal alien to him. So I don't think that he's using that term in that context. That would be uh, he doesn't believe it's Russian or Chinese, but he doesn't know what it is. Right. And I think that's the correct definition. I can't, I, th I don't think we can assume that UFO equals ET, but um, if it's not ET and it's something else, so it seems like what would that body of evidence even look like to establish that it's not man-made? So yeah. there has to be so much research done. And I've, I've read the papers about arts parts and some of the material that uh, TTS event, uh, TTSA eventually got a hold of. And I'm just not convinced. I, I don't think there's enough evidence there to actually establish that anything that they have is, is uh, not natural or not man-made. So it's really difficult to to really establish that someone has an anomalous, like truly unknown material or piece of equipment. Um, I guess it's possible, but I take the perspective and that we have to deal with the things that we know. We have to deal. We have to basically progress on on data and evidence. Mm -hmm. um, trying to trying to do research and investigation and scientific analysis on claims is is really not useful right and yeah and i mean i've relied on throughout the years chris cogswell now your your lead scientist you know a uh, part of your scientific advisory board who's been extremely critical of to the stars uh, and their discussions about these metamaterials or anomalous materials um Although kind of rightfully so, I believe, because he brings up, you know, the challenges that this is not a cakewalk. You can't just walk into the scientific community and say, look what we found, guys. I mean, if you look at the Mars rock, the evidence for, you know, life on this Mars rock that even President Clinton said, it looks like we found life. And it's still debated. It's not a foregone conclusion among all the scientific community that that was not evidence of life, just not enough proof. And that's the hard part is the... Um, the bar for the evidence that you need is like Chris Mellon says, it's not identified. He says, you know, you need extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Of course, he follows that up on the show and says, now we have that. But as far as UFO crashes or even materials, we don't have that. And it is something that will have to be scrutinized in the scientific community before those kind of claims can be made. And um, I think that's fair to ask for that. And yes. uh and I think that's really important. So I guess my question now, if you're an intelligence person, I, of course, I'm looking at this from a media perspective. So I, and you know, I'm thinking, whoa, guys, these are, uh, you know, um, unverifiable or, or unsubstantiated claims that you're making regarding UFO crashes based on apparently hearsay. However, uh, if you have this opportunity and it could have been, you know, maybe it's not really going to hurt us so much if we take this opportunity to signal Senate um, that we believe these materials are, or this evidence is out there so that if it is, you better include it or you're going to hear from us. If you don't, that might be sort of their thinking as to why they would talk to the New York Times and say these kind of things. That's my guess. Does that seem like a potentially the case or i mean potentially i mean if you really so 
if you really want to find out and collect intelligence on something, I I mean, you basically you're going to perform a huge signals intelligence mission, and that's what we're doing with Skyhub. We're collecting signals intelligence and collecting data about it, and that's that's ultimately what you want, right? So, data is the answer, um, and that's what's going to get people involved. So. Kind of the whole premise of this, there's a lot of people involved in ufology that is doing a lot of research, right? But uh, it seems that a lot of people aren't using good processes for data. Um, there's some people using science, and there's some people that think that science can't observe the phenomenon. Um, I reject that for now. So I think we want scientists involved in the community, but it seems like sometimes the community makes it so difficult for for academics and scientists to actually do research. Um, there's a lot of fringe ideas in pseudoscience that's involved, and we need to get over that. So one one thing I like to think is we don't need scientists involved to use the scientific method now. We are all capable of applying the scientific method and critical thinking to what we're doing in ufology right now. And I think as a community, we can actually use better processes and and you know basically methods for acquisitioning knowledge and testing and using science to build the body of evidence that large researchers and academics will will want. So I think really we can make it easier for academics to get involved and the answer is data and the answer is applying the scientific method and you know maybe some people are right the scientific method won't work in this case but um i don't think we've exhausted that i totally agree because i i, I agree with you that scientific method has not been it's rare that it's been applied fully and um rigorously in this field uh so i think that still needs to happen um, some of that happened perhaps in Blue Book, but not much that I can think of. Um, some of that happened in the Condon Report, uh, some of which was revelatory in that it showed some of those things were true unidentified mm -hmm. uh, at their best efforts. So uh, I totally agree with you. Um, and, you know, it also makes me think scientists want data, but they don't care where it comes from. Uh, as long as it's good data, so whether that comes from the Navy or whether it comes from Skyhub, what it's the crux of the issue is going to be how good is that data, and um, that's going to be the key. So, and everything's going to be questioned, whether it comes from the Navy or otherwise. Um, Absolutely, everything's going to be questioned by the scientific community. Yep, and I think that's why it's so important to have people like Chris Cogswell involved. Um, you know, we want to be transparent on how we collect data with, uh, we're going to be transparent about what hardware is used to collect it. So when a researcher comes along, he knows exactly what we did to produce that data. So there will, we want to be completely transparent about every way we're handling the data. So mm -hmm. it's important, especially when they want to study it, they need to know error rates. They need to know how it was collected. So you know, we want to be able to provide the best data we possibly can. Mm -hmm. 
It seems like secrecy, and of course, there's the Federation of the FAS. I can't remember their Federation. I don't think it's American scientists. Maybe it is, actually. But essentially, uh, it's kind of this battle between uh, when it comes to the military and government science that's done in secrecy, uh, science requires transparency, like you're talking about, so that everything can be verified. Um, and I think it seems like there's these kind of dangerous echo chambers that can happen in the classified world in that uh, Eric Davis even told us about the, the difficulty of getting help. If you have a classified program, you can't go to a scientist or a mathematician who you need help from directly. They're got to be read into the program. They need to be classified. There's this whole procedure before you can even have this person help you with your project. So it's a very difficult thing. And, and without, you know, I'm sure when it comes to bureaucracy, there's a tendency then not to seek outside help or the, uh, your ability to get outside help is hampered. So then you probably have, and it could be the case in, the, in when we're talking about these UFO crashes, this echo chamber where these rumors get started or there's this or that it, that's going on. Um, these rumors about, you know, hey, Project X is created anti-gravity or they think they're have they're onto anti-gravity but when you have uh you know let's a small amount of scientists looking at this who can't right. have their colleagues verify their data then it's going to hamper their ability to actually work on these projects so it's it's a hard problem so i mean some of the things i observed over the years so things were very stovepiped and they basically ran on a need to know policy. So you knew about the program that you worked in um, with um, after 9-11, they kind of transitioned to a need to share policy on intelligence sharing. So you'd, you'd basically share more openly with the intelligence community to avoid things like 9-11. Well, after Snowden, that, that definitely shifted back to a need to know and um, it actually changed uh, how information is shared significantly um, inside the intelligence community. But when you talk about programs like SAPS, it's a it's a whole different it's it's a totally different ball game. Like there there, I mean it's called the special access program. I mean it's very controlled. It's very limited on who gets to work in those. So yeah, I can see how these things happen where. You have a limited number of people and you don't seek um you possibly don't seek the right expertise all the time um and when it comes to usaps you can't even talk about the program's existence so you can't even acknowledge that it exists so yeah and i think there's even more problems with that so i i can see how you know these stovepipes and classified programs can kind of get stuck and have very little oversight so I, it's it's how do you solve that problem though you're and they're not doing nefarious things they're, these are these are people just like you and i going to work every day and they're trying to solve national security problems and creating new technology that they don't want any anyone to know about what it, that's the real goal right it's mm -hmm. they're they're people that are working diligently in their jobs trying to solve a problem right and, no one can know. Right. And which is kind of interesting on the other flip side too, is that, okay, let's say these UFO crash programs are real. 
um, and they are highly classified. If that's the case, then there is some delicacy needed in that, you know, we can't just go bushwhacking, charging into this, um, that uh, there are national security concerns, especially around technologies, if it's true, any have been gleaned from um, back engineering, something you're used to, I guess. Uh, you said you did that. I would guess yeah. you did that on the tech side of things. Yeah, but, uh, hardware and software, mm -hmm. mostly software. Yeah. So you've been there. Um, yeah. And so those are very sensitive projects, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah. I, they're, they're very sensitive. And we just, I mean, I don't, I'm not big on speculating. It, it can be fun, but it's, I guess it's, for me, it's not too useful. But if, to speculate on if we have crashed UFOs is, I just don't feel like we have evidence, enough evidence to, to really pursue that to its end. And people will disagree with me. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big skeptic. It, even when it comes to UFOs, I'm pretty much skeptical about everything. And I, I think that's important. Um, and like, you know, people will knock McWest, but we need people like McWest. If, if you have an idea or an opinion that can't stand up to scrutiny, well, then potentially it's not an idea or an opinion that's, that's worth holding. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, if you talk about crash retrievals, I guess it's possible. Um, We've, we honestly really haven't seen a strong indication that there are, there seem to be a number of people that are convinced that we have retrieved crash UFOs, but what they're really saying is they have something that they recovered that they don't know what it is. That's mm -hmm. it. Right. So, right. So I, I'm not really sure what I can derive from that. There's something that they have that they don't understand. So there's a lot of things we don't understand. <laughs> right. So I, I don't know what to make of that. So I think mm -hmm. with the, we need more data and we need more evidence. <coughs> mm -hmm. And I think it's great. The work that TTS, TTSA is doing and the work that Skyhub is doing and the folks over at UAPX are looking to do, you know, hands-on research. So I think as these groups start pushing for further and further, hopefully we'll be able to, get more clarity on some of these claims. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've uh, posted on Open Mind articles on, I think what are probably the most convincing crashes in the US and, and international cases. Some of them are very interesting, mm -hmm. um, but of course some of them have turned out to be space debris, um, which would make sense. They're, that's the whole point. If it's unidentified, it could be foreign technology. Um, foreign technology, of course, typically meaning Chinese or Russian or some other government, right. uh, which has turned out to be the case in, in many cases. So um, I think you're right. You know, none of those cases, uh, even Roswell, I wrote a piece on that recently, just kind of, I'm just trying to educate people on UFO crashes and what's out there historically regarding UFO crashes so they can have all the information and, you know, determine for themselves. But I would say you're right. They all pretty much rely on anecdotal information, um, which is sort of difficult. And I would say non, often non, well, yeah, the anecdotal information. So it's really difficult, especially mm -hmm. if, and I keep saying this, if you want the scientific community involved, we, we have to, we have to get better data. 
Mm-hmm. And as you collect that data and be more rigorous on how you build your body of information about UFOs, um, people will take that seriously. You know, people will knock Neil deGrasse Tyson or recently, you know, I commented on Seth Shostak's article about UFO and a lot of people um, criticize me for, you know, saying great article. <laughs> so, hmm. but these are the types of people, maybe not specifically Tyson or Shostak, but these are the types of people we really do want involved. Um, we want these people that have devoted their careers to physics and searching for life in, in the galaxy. So we want these types of people involved in, in the discussion, but the only way you're going to get them involved is credible data. They, they want data. Yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent. And I think one of the problems is, and that's what is kind of difficult. Maybe Skyhub will finally be that person. Nobody has been willing to kind of stand up and counter or at least debate um, Shostak and others in kind of a, in a peer to peer type of way. Um, and I'm hopeful that will happen because we do need a SETI of UAPs essentially. And to the stars has kind of been had their own focus. They have limited resources, despite what many people think. Um, and they've also obviously made an, I think an astronomical amount of headway in this field right now. Just, I, I never could have imagined, you know, I mean, they've gotten the Senate intelligence community to ask these questions. That's, you know, amazing. So they've definitely been doing their part. Um, but uh, yeah, hopefully in the not too distant future, we'll have, you know, people challenging them with more than just, you know, we'll go look at the internet, you'll see this and that, or, mm-hmm. you know, with more challenging points uh, and facts and data, because certainly I think there's room there. Certainly, I don't know if you'd agree with this. Shostak is an intelligent thinker, but he, uh, doesn't seem to have all the information um, when he is espousing his opinions. Potentially. I mean, so consider this. So if you're interested in astrophysics, it doesn't necessarily make you interested in UFOs. So I assume that Seth has pursued SETI because he's passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe he's not passionate about UFOs. I, you really don't go researching UFOs and ufology unless you have a deep interest or a curiosity about it. Um, and also, you know, I'm sure his job's fairly demanding and he would actually have to like prioritize researching UFOs, which I wouldn't expect anyone, anyone just to go out and start researching UFOs. Um, but if you go to someone and like say, Oh, there's unidentified, like in, of course, there's ETs flying around our atmosphere. Um, someone that has devoted their life to searching for ac- extraterrestrial intelligence in the galaxy is going to be like, "Yeah, I'm not convinced," and they're they're probably not going to look at it unless you give them really compelling information, and it can't be anecdotal, it can't be claims yeah. or stories. So, my only argument is Stan Friedman has. Did, did debate him before he passed away quite a few times and did give him materials. And for instance, I've written an article and I do a lecture about astronomers and UFOs. And I guess that's my main contention with him is that he always claims astronomers don't see UFOs. They're not interested in UFOs. When uh, I think I can 
show in my article and in, in my lectures that mm -hmm. astronomers are the ones who started their ufology, uh, beginning with like Dr. J. Allen Hynek. He was an astronomer um, and he wrote a paper. And there's another guy, Peter Sturick, who wrote a paper, a book about astronomers and UFOs, demonstrating, including doing inventories with uh, large astronomy associations. And I know Friedman in particular has shared this information with Shostak, these books and information. And to this date, even though it's been decades, to this date, it doesn't appear that he's read or reviewed any of that material. So uh, it's, it is my opinion he is actively staying away from trying to educate himself in this area. And possibly for the reason that you mentioned is that, you know, it would be a lot to tackle. But uh, at the very least, he could read those reports. The Hynek wrote a report on astronomers and UFOs. There's a book. If he read those things, at least he would be able to correct that inaccurate statement. <laughs> I mean, we can ask him. I mean, I know. We can just ask him. I'm, yeah. I'm confident he'd give us an answer. Yeah. Uh, well, he has been asked and essentially just says, I, I'm not aware of that material. And okay. that's all he'll say. So unfortunately, but I think things will change as more people and people who are at a higher level begin to, to get involved with the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I, th I, and it always comes back to data. I think yeah. if you were to present Shostak or any other scientist with credible data that showed something truly interesting, they would probably, I mean, the scientific community, let's be honest, they would jump all over that. Yeah, if you would I think actually so too. give them evidence, they would, like, they would be all over UFOs. Mm -hmm. And I can't blame them in that. Typically, you know, this has not been the most disciplined or scientific um, kind of area of study. So I think the vast majority, it happens to us, it happens to you right now, vast majority of information that is shared with you is less than credible or uh, usually very dubious. And you, for my case, I'll spend days or hours researching it just to find out it isn't something credible. So it's interesting. I've actually become more skeptical of UFOs after getting involved with, <laughs> with the subject. So like, at, at, you know, as I dig in and like learn more about some of the different aspects in ufology i'm even more skeptical about most of the things and one of the primary reasons i'm actually even involved is because of chris mellon and luella mm. Sando. when they got out what was it 2017 they came out on stage and showed the like got the videos out in the new york times and they announced ttsa i was that that's what kind of dragged me in is seeing two really credible people from the intelligence community jump into the ufo topic which i found very interesting mm -hmm. so i probably wouldn't be doing this today if it wasn't for those two yeah that's awesome and i think that's true for a lot of people and i think uh, whether you like it or not your work is going to get a lot more people involved um and uh, uh that's going to be exciting uh one last question before we it's, right. it's about time we end this that's okay you got time Yep, I got time. Okay. My last question here is, there was kind of a debate um, that I thought was really interesting, and I'm not sure if you had seen that. You might have been involved with this Twitter debate between, like, and the people we were mentioning, Adam Kehoe, Tim McMillan, um, 
Chris Mellon and Tyler Rogaway. And it was kind of not that Chris Mellon was definitely involved with the conversation, but he certainly prompted it by statements he had made. And essentially, someone asked, you know, how comprehensive was their review of information to determine these objects weren't uh, from another country, especially China or Russia. And he said it was very comprehensive. And he, he argues that, uh, you know, they do have oversight. He did, when he worked with the Senate, have oversight of all of the SAPs and USAPs. And so he's very confident when he says these aren't ours and we don't have programs with these sort of things. Uh, and he would be in a position to know. Some people argued, surprisingly, even Tyler Rogaway, uh, defense writer, journalist, right. that it could be possible that there could be projects or programs that are outside of, you know, normal um, oversight. Do you think that's possible? I think Mellon seems skeptical of that. Uh, so did most. Uh, Brian Bender, I think, even commented that another defense policy, you know, journalist, uh, skeptical of that. Um, what are your thoughts? So I never really worked at that level, right? So I, mm. I worked cleared programs, of course, but as far as a program existing without oversight would be, it would seem diff it would seem to be difficult. I, I'm not exactly mm -hmm. sure. I guess in theory it's possible. Um, I never witnessed anything that was done in the shadows. It was just, it's just sensitive, right? You're, they're just trying to protect information. I, I guess it's conceivable. There might be a, a program somewhere, but there's gotta be somewhere, someone wondering where all this money is going. So they're, they're accountable to someone because they need money and they're getting mm -hmm. it somehow. So there's always some trail of paperwork or money. Um, so I, I'm I'm not really sure. I'm probably not the best person to ask that. It it would seem no. Very just your experience is interesting. Yeah. It it would seem difficult to do, like because mm -hmm. a, a lot of people have like kind of a interesting perspective of the government, like this well well oiled machine hiding secrets from the people and conspiring against the people. But really, it's just people like you and I. It's your neighbors. It's your friends. It's your family that are going to work every day, getting a job done. And it's really not a well-oiled machine. It's just a bunch of random people showing up every day trying to get a <laughs> job done. And, you know, people should be surprised the government runs as well as it does. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's – I just don't see – like working inside the government and being a part of it, um, nobody's conspiring. <laughs> people are just trying to get jobs done. And, you know – Things are sensitive. You can't share with the public. Right. So skyhub.org is where people can go see more about Skyhub. Also, the, when you said you, you found all these government documents, are those shared online somewhere? So they were. So I used to okay. have everything hosted at Flux UFO. Um, but since I got involved in Skyhub, that has kind of been pushed to the wayside. So my collection of documents is not currently accessible. It is okay. possible they will be back online in the future but cool. uh there is another project that's popping up called sightings that will incorporate um witness testimony and potentially other data sources of documents and things like that so i would uh keep your keep your ears 
peek for that one. That might be an interesting project to keep your eye on. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited about what you're doing. If openminds.tv can help in any way, please do let us know. And keep up the great work. Your involvement thus far has been very helpful and uh, definitely appreciated by people like me. And I know the guys at SCU who do appreciate, you know, uh, the scientific method and, and um, better, more credible ways of collecting and sharing data. So keep up the and I have a feeling this is going to be the first of many questions. I think so. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you having me on. It's been great. My pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to do it. And uh, I guess we'll see you hopefully uh, in the audience again next time we do a show. Oh, definitely. And don't forget, catch us at skyhub.org and come check out the project. Yep. Everybody, I hope I'll definitely be pushing that quite a bit. It's really exciting. Um, and the finished product is really good looking, too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Talk to you All later. Right, thank you.